0: Welcome to Embrace Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Accenture. In each of these podcasts, we're diving into some of the key topics affecting the industry today. In this episode, we are excited to welcome Chris Skinner, an independent commentator on FinTech, the financial markets and banking. Joining him are Fergus Gordon and Graham Rothwell, banking lead and payments lead respectively for Africa and Asia Pacific at Accenture. Together, they discuss open banking and the digitalization of banks.
1: Good afternoon and, and thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm Kieran White, I'm a senior manager in our Sydney office. As we go through today, we're going to start off with a bit of setting the stage and talk about where we are right now with open banking and what we've learned. And then I'd like to maybe open it up and explore a bit about some of the side effects, some of the casualties, some of the unexpected things that we might expect to see as a result. And then probably closing it off with a discussion about what banks might need to be doing to prepare today uh, what they might wish that they were doing to prepare last year as well, probably as a discussion at the same time. Um, so if we start off then, I think, to so where are we right now, basically, your thoughts? PSD2 is obviously come into effect in Europe last year, and other parts of the world have seen some similar initiatives getting started. Is it fair to say that these are just baby steps compared to what's to come? Yeah, I think so, uh,
2: in that what we're seeing is a enforced move towards open sourcing financial services from a regulatory viewpoint between PSD2, open banking, and other regulators' moves, and a resistance to that by the majority of banks because they're concerned around how that might cannibalize or eat into their business and particularly their margins. So there's actually quite a bit of friction between The third parties that want access to data, um, a lot of the fintech startups, the fintech unicorns, and the large banks who are trying to work out how to grapple with this. And to a large extent, it's actually a cultural impact because if you think about most of the big banks, they've had this control over the whole end-to-end supply chain of financial services for the last 300 years, and suddenly they're having to open it out to everyone being... A partner getting involved in their business and that's actually not a very nice feeling
1: yeah interesting and i think that the cultural points one that we'll uh, we'll probably see elsewhere as as we go to different parts of the world um banks maybe will have different reactions to it from from sort of uh, geographical differences um graham your thoughts on that i guess from an apac point of view what are you seeing happening in the market
3: yeah look obviously Open banking, it's a, it's a new wave of transformation across Asia Pacific. And off the back of what's happened in Europe and the UK, everyone's watching it closely. We've seen Singapore make moves towards it, Malaysia, Hong Kong, um, and Australia. Interestingly, Australia is the only one in Asia so far that's regulating it. The rest have been driven by the industry and the, the government, but not in a regulatory fashion at the moment. So the, the Australian mandate's going to be interesting. It's got to um, that the industry needs to transform to open banking with its first wave of a capability by the big four banks in July next year. Uh, Everyone's watching it quite closely. There are some nuances in Australia, which would be interesting to get Chris's view on uh, with respect to Europe. Uh, One is that the Australian regime is more than just banking. It's, It's open data off the back of what the federal government's called the consumer data right, which is the, 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 the right for consumers to own and manage their own data. And it's not gonna be just the banks that are gonna be regulated in this fashion. There's a, there's a wave of other industry sectors, telcos, utilities, et cetera, that are gonna to have to comply at some point too. So it's gonna be more than just banking. And, and from a banking point of view, the Australian regulation is only, it's read only. So it's about providing customer data to third parties There's no payment functionality as there is in Europe. The other interesting nuance in Australia is that for a third party to participate in the open data framework... Uh, they are also obligated to provide their customer data back to the other participants, such as the banks. So it's also a two-way street, which makes it quite interesting to think about what sort of people may want to play in that. I mean, if I was Google, for example, I probably would think twice about participating because I'd be obliged to give all of my customer data to the banks.
2: Yeah, I mean, from a European viewpoint, we've seen uh, quite a few things um, developing. So, for example, the large banks have created... Different versions of API implementation, which means that if you're trying to integrate with under PSD2 payments from the um, thousands of banks across Europe, you have to develop thousands of different API interfaces because they're all different. Um, Equally, in the UK, for example, we have open banking, which is actually far more extensive than just payments. But again, the large nine banks that are, are. being told to open up to third parties through APIs have um, made the permissioning um, access to data for customers so difficult for the customer that it's not worth it. And there's actually quite a complex cultural thing here which is obviously the, the large banks are nervous about third parties having access to customer data and the, what that means competitively and to their own business. But equally customers are nervous about third parties having access to data because they feel that it makes them less secure and what's interesting is that the media when open banking was launched at the beginning of this year in the uk for example reinforced that insecurity by saying oh you know you're giving third parties access to your data you'll probably get hacked and get scammed and you'll lose money Uh, and that's not a good thing because that's not actually what it's meant to do it what it's meant to do is to give you the benefit of facebook amazon or other services being able to seamlessly take your money as you're doing your social and uh, shopping Um, it's not meant to actually make you less secure why would a regulator bring in a regulation that makes sure banking less secure that's stupid Uh, but that's exactly what the banks and the media are trying to convey because they don't want to in particular the large banks don't want you to have other companies accessing your data that might actually weaken the relationship that the bank has with you
3: yeah that's interesting and and but there's also a, a, an irony in in the bank's positions as well i've certainly noticed in australia and other markets and i'm interested in your views over there that the banks are very keen to have access to customers data from other banks
2: for their own services yeah i mean it's funny when um psd2 was announced uh i i remember several conversations saying that the third parties that would have the most Uh, need to access customer data would be the other banks. Um, So that's definitely true. Um, And equally, one of the things which I think you touched on is, and we haven't seen this yet in PSD2, but I think it will come in in PSD3, is uh, banks having access to third parties data. Um, Because it's all well and good to say that third parties, particularly fintech startups, can access customer data uh, within the banks. Um, But when the banks start to leverage um, external third-party data, then that will also get interesting because uh, at the moment, a lot of this is the law of unintended consequences. We don't know how it's going to play out. All we know is that it's going to become a really interesting data-enriched marketplace of our digital financial lifestyle. And how that structures longer term will be interesting.
1: Fergus, I know um, obviously you have a, a wider a- APAC remit, but you're, you're based in Hong Kong. From the conversations you've had with your Hong Kong based clients so far on this topic, do you think they are, are they ready for this? Are they, are they prepared for what they need to do or, or are they still in the early stages? Well, well, I
4: think it does depend very, very much on the individual institutions. Um, we speak to a, a number of the banks uh, here in Hong Kong and there does seem to be a relatively large sense of let's just get it done get the compliance in meet the minimum requirements from a number of those institutions but then uh, if you look at someone like city who's been out there and and publicly looking for you know open api partnerships and partners to work with you know they're starting to take those baby steps around bringing open banking to life here in the market and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out Uh, then obviously and this is one of the things i wanted to get your thoughts on chris if you look north of the border here into the mainland there's obviously been some uh, seismic ecosystem work going on uh, with a lot of integration of the data and if you look at someone like Ant Financial i'd be interested to get your thoughts around what lessons that you know their success and their their sort of you know leading of the way in in this space has for the rest
2: of the world yeah i mean Ant financial is a um, main case study in my latest book digital human and the reason for making this as a case study is that they're a really interesting company. Uh, they're the first company that's uh, implemented a global vision around financial inclusion. And the way in which they've done that is through a open marketplace platform of APIs that provide financial services from uh, payments to micro savings, micro insurance, and micro loans. I mean, the whole range of services and they're providing that globally to partners in Pakistan, India, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, et cetera, but equally they're also providing that open API marketplace of um, innovation to other Chinese banks. And you know, we, we may think that financial Alipay are a threat to other banks, but in fact, they're actually powering a lot of services in the big banks of China because when you see open banking working, what happens is that the banks that used to build an awful lot of their own internal software and services, uh, which is high cost and high maintenance, are now discovering that they can deliver actually far more innovative services far more quickly using white label partnerships such as our financials, APIs, into their own services to augment what they do. And I think that's the fundamental foundation of how we should see open banking and open uh, financial services which is moving away from the old days of massive internal development shops within the banks to build stuff to agile, nimble players that just integrate and white label whatever is the best services to make their customers experience is the best they can be.
1: And Chris, I'm interested, there's a point that Fergus touched on briefly earlier about um, some banks going with the approach of doing the bare minimum. Sort of just ticking the box to kind of meet the standard and then others others taking that that wider approach do you think the bigger opportunity is for a, a big dominant established player because of the size that they've already got to begin with or is there more to lose and therefore the, the real opportunity is for the, the smaller banks or for the fintechs where do you see the big opportunity
2: yeah i think there's opportunities here for everyone if they have the right attitude and really it comes down to seeing this as a change in the business model, and it's something that I talk about extensively non-stop, which is as we digitalise banking, it's not a project or a function, it's actually a cultural transformation of the bank's structure, Uh, it's a new business model, it's uh, a challenge to traditional bank thinking which controlled everything. Restricted everything to becoming a partnering collaborative company that can see the opportunity of working with many different players uh, um, And particularly a lot of the fintech unicorns and fintech startups And that's an opportunity that is available to any bank small or big um, Obviously the larger the bank is the harder it is to make that cultural change because you're talking of trying to change tens of thousands of um, employees and managers view of the world rather than thousands but it's a big opportunity for all there are some banks that are doing this pretty well and I'm working on my next project which is you know which banks are actually doing digital well and there are a few but at the moment it's only a few and the reason is that um, to do digital well you have to have a leadership team and particularly a c-suite that understands what technology is doing to change the business model and the structure of the industry, and there's very few C-suite level people who really understand that. You guys did a survey that I refer to regularly from 2015, so okay, it's a few years ago now, but you know, the bottom line was that only 6% of the C-suite, the boardroom, um, actually have any technology experience professionally in their lives, and that's an indictment of the industry. You know, if you've got 94% of the leadership teams of the banks being bankers or non-technology people, how can they understand this opportunity? They just won't.
1: It's interesting. So it sounds like one of the, one of the key lessons in terms of, of success is around technological and, and technology understanding and capability. Um, what, what are some of the other lessons that we can learn from, from some of the markets that have done this first?
2: Again, uh, I mean, I tend to talk a lot about the fact that when I deal with banks in Europe and America and Australia, uh, I'm dealing with legacy infrastructures because they implemented an awful lot of their technology in the last century and it's never been renovated since. Um, in fact, I did write extensively a diatribe about ANZ's legacy systems a few years ago, which then led to um, a new leader uh, coming in to digitalise the bank, um, Mayo Carnegie, who came from Google, um, Australia, New Zealand, to be the digital transformation leader within ANZ. What's interesting is um, she said. Uh, the biggest issue we have is the frozen middle. And what she meant by that is the frozen middle management team. Um, Because when you talk about digital transformation, a lot of people immediately start to get nervous because they think it's gonna be automating jobs and therefore losing jobs or losing power in the middle management team. And that's why I keep coming back to saying it's a leadership change um, rather than a project or function. Um, And Going back to your question, though, uh, most of the uh, ways in which I see the future comes from Asia, Africa, and South America, because in those economies, a lot of the infrastructure wasn't implemented in the last century. They they didn't have the infrastructure that Australia, Europe, and America had implemented, Uh, and so we can see them leapfrogging, and uh, I was just in China last week, and yeah, China uh, has had Uh, hand does have some very big banks, Um, but when you look at how they operated, it was very um, manual. It wasn't highly automated. Uh, They didn't implement huge ranges and sways of technology in the last century. And what we're now seeing is companies like Ant Financial and Tencent and Pingan and others leapfrogging because the infrastructure wasn't there. So they've actually implemented whole new systems in the last... 10, 15 years that show the new way of doing things. And what's most incredible is that it, you know, it and Financial, for example, as I say, it's a case study, which is why I keep coming back to them. Uh, but they refresh their systems architecture from scratch every three or four years. And yet most banks I talk to haven't actually refreshed their systems architecture their back office in the last 40 years. And that's the significant difference. You've got to have a continuum and dynamo change of the structures of technology, you can't just let them rot, and that's the biggest indictment of most large banks in Europe and America, in particular, that they've let their systems rot, and they're going to find it very hard to compete in the age of artificial intelligence and distributed ledgers and all the things that we're now seeing coming through as the new technologies.
1: Okay, we've we've talked about banks quite a bit. I'm just going to going to pivot us um, slightly for a second to. Um some of the other non-bank providers out there and how this is likely to impact them. And, and Graham, I'm actually quite interested in your thoughts from an APAC point of view on uh, the aggregator market. So likes of money Hero, I know, are pretty, pretty into much of APAC and compare the market as well. I'm just, I'm interested in what you think the impact of open banking might be on them and whether there's been any conversations about that, whether they're likely to, based on what Chris is saying, have a technology architecture that means they can react faster and take advantage. Uh, of open banking more quickly than the big banks, or whether open banking is going to render them obsolete altogether. Yeah, no problem. happy to comment on that. Do you mind if I just go back to a previous point, though,
3: um, that course. Chris was making? Um, and Chris, you were talking about some of the banks just doing the bare minimum, and, and others thinking a bit strategically about how they address open banking. And and I think there's some interesting dynamics around that that I've certainly observed. I mean, our, our point of view to our banking clients is that they need... They need to think about open banking in three ways. One is, you know, the the compliance, the regulatory compliance that they need to implement. The second layer is the things they need to do to protect their franchise and their existing business. And then the third layer is the things they need to do to attack, in other words, go after new business models that open banking creates. And when I talk to certainly the incumbent banks, the bigger banks in, in any particular country, there's... There's a huge gravity towards just focusing on the compliance at the moment. And I think it's probably the, the the smaller banks, the second tiers, who to your point can be a little bit more agile, that have a bigger opportunity to play in the, um, the, the defend and certainly the attack dimensions of open banking. And then the other one that I've seen, and you know, Yalt is a good example in the UK, is I think there's also going to be a global play of the, the the global banks potentially using this as a platform to, to re-enter markets that they maybe had withdrawn from, you know, post GFC and so forth as well.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I I mean, it's interesting when you look at how different banks approach digitalizations. and surprisingly from my perspective, I talk a lot these days about JPMorgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, for example, as being banks that get digital. and then there's a lot of other banks that talk about the fact that they get digital but i just don't see that implemented from a leadership team viewpoint and the big difference is that if you look at jp morgan chase for example and their digital transformation journey then it started um five or six years ago and it's not just talking the talk but it's walking the walk and that to me is the biggest difference i see an awful lot of banks that the chief executive uh, and the press room make releases and presentations about doing digital, but I can see that they're not really doing it. They're doing it maybe from a cost-cutting viewpoint, um, they're doing it from an efficiency viewpoint, but they're not doing it from a customer focus viewpoint, and and that's the biggest difference. If you look at what JP Morgan's been doing for the past few years, and it's one of the biggest banks in the world, it's spending $3 billion a year on digital innovation, which is a huge budget, but equally, All of the discussions seem to be talking around the customer journey, the customer experience, the customer focus. And that's the biggest point for me, that if it's talking around the cost efficiency, then it's more about shareholder return than about actually um, delivering competitive advantage. And that's where I see the biggest difference between the players that are doing this right and the players who are doing this wrong.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Do you think um, some of the fintech startups that are out there are just going to uh, smash it out of the ballpark compared to some of the big banks i I'm, I'm thinking of a scenario in which some some little sort of uh, d- done in someone 's garage app actually ends up being being something that offers a better customer experience than something provided by the big players uh, and when once once the authorization journeys are simplified everyone in the consumer market just flows towards it? Is that something that you think is likely to happen? I don't think the
2: fintech players are going to smash the banks. Um, I often talk about Stripe in particular. Um, And the reason why I talk about Stripe is that I think they illustrate the fintech community brilliantly well. Uh, They started in 2010 when John Collison was 19 years old and his brother Patrick 21 years old. So teenagers, because they can code, are reinventing banking services by specializing in doing one thing brilliantly well. And what Stripe does brilliantly well is online checkouts with seven lines of code. But that seven lines of code launched in 2011 became a $9.2 billion company five years later when they had their last valuation at the end of 2016. And today, I think they'll probably be valued at around $30 billion because they've expanded massively across Asia since that last valuation. And if you think they're worth around $30 billion, then that means that the average employee of Stripe is generating uh, about $60 million of market value. Compared to uh, the average employee of J.P. Morgan Chase that generates about one million dollars in market value, so 60 times more market value. Why would they be worth 60 times more per employee than J.P. Morgan Chase? Well, it's because they're doing one thing brilliantly well: online merchant checkout on a globalized basis. And this is where I think the fintech community stands out, which is you're seeing thousands of companies doing one thing brilliantly well on a globalized basis, which is why they become unicorns and Each of these unicorns, transfer-wise, Zopa, uh, Sophie, Nutmeg, the list is huge. You can pick on them and say, well, those are the people the banks need to be partnering and curating and working with. And if you're not partnering and curating and working with those companies, then it means your competition probably is. And you will lose out because if your competition is working with them, then you can't partner with them.
1: Yeah, certainly the opportunity is is clearly a, a massive one. Fergus, I'm interested, um, we've kind of bashed the big banks a little bit in terms of, the, of their flexibility and, and readiness to embrace this. Um, are we seeing some some positive stories as well as some of the ones that are really willing to walk the walk? I'm thinking maybe some of the players based in Singapore that, that you work with.
4: Well, I think there are a couple of examples that I would uh, point to. Um, there's been more, um, relatively progressive on, on, on this front, both in the digital and the open banking space. Uh, you've seen DBS in Singapore um, make a big, big point around moving to a, a digital financial services company, and, and they've sort of tried to reorganise themselves very uh, much around that digital technology business. Um, the second one, I think, as I mentioned, was Citi, who's who started to think through the open banking space pretty hard, um, particularly with some of their uh, partnerships, whether it's around uh, the HKTV Mall um, integration with the you know, Pay By Points app, or whether it's the integration with AIA or the Octopus app. And, and so they've they're, they're been sort of grasping uh, the, the opportunity or starting to think about how they can really take advantage of the opportunity to open banking in Hong Kong. The other one that I think is a really interesting discussion is on the virtual banking side here. Uh, where Standard Chartered have come out and and stated pretty clearly they have an intent to launch a virtual bank and around the optionality and the um, uh, flexibility that that underlying platform and license could provide them. And I think that's a uh, very interesting model in terms of how a bank can potentially reinvent itself off the back of uh, the entry of of a new virtual bank. The one other thing I, I did want to mention is we, we've been doing some global research uh, around the impact of digital challenges and fintechs on the different profit pools uh, within the banking industry, particularly as, as the digital challenger market and the open banking um, thrust come through into Asia-Pacific. It's, it's instructive to look at some of the uh, lessons learned from other markets. If we look at the evolution of, say, you know, the UK from 2005 into the end of 2017, you know that market's been fundamentally de- disrupted. There are 63% of, of the, the licensed institutions are new since 2005. And if we look of at, at, the, at the profit generation since 2005, that 14% of, of the entire new profit has been allocated either to new traditional banks or digital challenges in fintechs. Um, and while a lot of that profit... Generated by the non-traditional players has been centred in the payment space. I think it does give rise and, and give some uh, sense of confirmation that the erosion of the profit base and the profit margins the traditional players have is ongoing, and that the microservices that some of these newer players are, are, are offering, both not only you know uh, beat the traditional offering but also have found real homes with the, with the customers out there.
1: Okay, I'm a little bit conscious of time, and, and Chris, you said something earlier, you said that the um, you think the fintechs will, will smash the banks. If we were going to get practical, and there's the bank CEO that's listening to this, and he's just spilled his coffee, um, what are the tangible actions that, that they ought to be taking to make sure that actually they're doing the smashing, not being smashed?
2: I think they need to start with reflecting on how fit the bank is for the next decade, and in particular have a look around the C-suite and see exactly how knowledgeable the boardroom and the C-suite is around technology. Um, You know, I meet an awful lot of big banks and they have a chief digital officer um, who tends to generally report to the chief information officer, who tends to generally report to the chief financial officer. So the CFO is on the leadership team, but no one with technology or digital ownership is on the leadership team because they're um, underneath, you know, the, the boardroom and and underneath the C-suite, and and that's where I think the the mistake lies. That not only do you need to have a leadership team that's digitally engaged, but you also need to have diversity in the team to make sure that it's fully engaged with understanding uh, code and um, the next generation of services. If you look at the average age of most fintech startup founders, Um, it's under the age of 35. Um, If you look at an awful lot of the biggest fintech successes in the world, um, their founders were in their 20s or even in their teens when they started. And yet, if you go into most banks, I think the average age of the C-suite and the boardroom would be in their 50s, maybe in their early 60s, depending on the bank. So I think you need to reflect on, do you have the right team to lead digital transformation and engage in open banking. Bearing in mind that open banking is all about code. Marcus shrink who's one of the very senior people in Deutsche Bank, was at a conference recently and he said that being able to code is becoming as important in business and in banking as being able to speak English. And I think that's a core statement. that I don't think everyone in the bank's leadership team sees we needs to be able to code, but I think they need to understand they I need mean, to understand how code is changing the structure, the business model, the nature of everything, and specifically financial services. And if you don't have that team, then change the team.
1: Yeah, it makes, makes perfect sense. Although again, I'm not sure that's going to stop people from spilling their coffee at the advice. Um, Graham and Fergus, um, same question to you, really. Um, from the, the players that, that you work with, large and small, what piece of advice would you want to give them in terms of their preparations for open banking?
3: Yeah, look, so from an Australian perspective where I spend most of my time, the the advice to the banks is to disrupt themselves and the market with open banking. And to my earlier point, I think they need to be thinking more than just compliance. They need to think about defend and attack as well. Um, But then I think there'll be a second wave of open banking and that the banks now need to start thinking about ecosystems um, off the back of that where I think other corporates other industries are gonna be able to plug into open banking and create some new interesting digital value propositions and the banks wanna be driving that, not reacting to it. You know, there, there'll be things that telcos and retailers and airlines and all that sort of stuff will be able to come up with new service propositions. And I think the, the opportunity for the bank is to be helping drive that and lead it rather than end up being a subservient to the, the, the new um, service propositions.
4: I'd add to that. 100% agree on the ecosystem point. I, I, I think the ability to consume and and share data with uh, ecosystem partners to you know broaden the the, the value chain that banks are currently uh, serving is is going to be important. Um, the other thing I think that's going to be particularly important for for banks um, in the light of these more digital services is to fundamentally rethink their distribution model. You know, most of the banks today are very heavily focus with a big branch network that consumes up to 50% of their um, operating expenses. And it's very hard to be as flexible and nimble and make the necessary investments if you're still carrying a a legacy branch network uh, that's as as sizable as some of our uh, traditional banks are. And so really fundamentally rethinking the role of distribution, the role of the branch in that and the shape and size of the branches and how it complements and and serves the, the customer in that distribution model is really important.
1: Gents, um, is there anything else that you want to call out before we move to wrap up? We've, uh, we've covered a lot of territory in a very short space of time.
3: There's, a, there's only one other point, and I'd, I'd be interested in, in Chris's thinking on it as well. One, one thing I've observed is I've seen organisations in Australia like Zero really start to think about how they can become a, a player in open banking, Xero being the online accounting package that lots of SMEs use. Um, And they've started integrating with the banks and have even started becoming payment initiators. The other one that um, is quite interesting and I'm watching is in New Zealand, where TradeMe is also participating in their open banking collaboration. And and if you're not aware of TradeMe, they're they're kind of a a halfway between an eBay and and an Alibaba. And they dominate the New Zealand market and have 100% market share in New Zealand. It just makes me wonder, you know, what's the role of the banks going to be when when that sort of organisation can start to leverage a lot of the, the banking services. Interesting
2: your views, Chris. Yeah, I mean, the point you're raising is actually probably one of the most critical ones for the next decade, which is what role does my bank want to play in the future? And I talk a lot about the front, middle and back office, which is retailing, processing and manufacturing. And the front office retailing experience... I think it's diminishing in importance for most banks because it's being replaced by a app and a new digitally engaged experience for the customer. So we talk a lot now about banks becoming um, smart pipes. I don't like to call them dumb pipes because I think they're, they're, they're smart. Um, and information enrichment uh, and data engagement. But the challenge to do information enrichment and to be smart Mm pipes is to get a holistic view of the customer and to get an integrated view of the customer from all the feeds of data historically within the bank but also externally outside the bank. And that's where I think the biggest challenge will lie, which is um, if banks want to say their core competency is going to be informing the customer about their financial lifestyle then they have to get a lot smarter with the data that they store and most banks are pretty poor at dealing with data um, because they have fragmented infrastructures.
1: Okay, I think, um, I think I'm think i conscious of time. I'm sure we could talk about this for, for many, many more hours and, uh, and enjoy doing so, but um, uh, we've covered lots of territory in the time that we have had. Uh, I'll, I'll attempt to do a recap, but I'm not sure it'll be exhaustive. I think we started with a, a view of the variety of regulation and, uh, and open banking initiatives around the world. Uh, we talked a little bit about the interplay between the providers in terms of considerations around data sharing and how comfortable they feel about, about that, particularly when it's a two-way street. We talked I think several times actually about the capability and the readiness of of the big banks in particular from a technology point of view and from an understanding point of view uh, to be able to respond to this quickly enough. We talked about customer experience and um, taking an experience led approach versus sort of a bare minimum compliance and cost uh, cost efficiency standpoint. We talked a little bit about value pools and where the profits are coming from and I heard lots of bits of advice. I think probably three main ones that that jumped out at me. One of them was looking at absolutely, do you have the right team and the right leadership team and capabilities and understanding in place? Second thing, which is looking a bit more on the bright side from all of this, the opportunities that it gives you in terms of new value propositions that can be built off the back of this. And thirdly, thinking about the the distribution models and the opportunities uh, to rethink those in an open banking era. Uh, And we touched a little bit around aggregators and the shifting role of the banks and the the smart pipes point that you brought out there at the end, Chris. So I think I've covered most of it. I'm sure I missed one or two things, but um, there's opportunities to talk to us more about these things in the future. This this podcast is particularly timely with Cybos coming up as a conference running in Sydney on the 22nd to the 25th of October this year, so very soon. Graham and Fergus, I'm pretty sure that you gents are going to be there. Um, Where can people find you?
3: Yeah, look, Accenture is going to have a big presence at Cybos. We're looking forward to it. Um, You can certainly find us at the Accenture booth in the the main exhibition hall
1: or um, we have a number of events on as well, which uh, you're welcome to attend. Gents, thanks very much for your time. It's been a really useful and informative discussion. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you to Fergus Gordon, Graham Rothwell and our special guest, Chris Skinner. Author of the book, Digital Human, The Fourth Revolution of Humanity Includes Everyone. Available online through Amazon. Find more insights from Chris every day at thefinancer.com. Discover the Accenture Exhibition at Cybos in Sydney from October 22 to 25. For more details, visit accenture.com slash You've been listening to Embrace Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Accenture.